25. Exodus 25. A new chapter in Exodus. Actually, we have some precursory studies, some precursory things to look at, some precursory uh, verses to look at. And, you know, last week we kind of talked about the the horrors of chapter 32, where there's the golden calf. And we can look at the people of Israel, the people of God. And, you know, yes, chapter 32 is ugly. It kills me that it's even here. But at the same time, it kind of reminds me of me. It kind of reminds me of my own moments of infidelity unto the Lord. Infidelity. And when I say that, you know, I don't want to conjure images of grotesque things. But, you know, when you're a young believer, there's these, you know, you're at kind of at war with the world and at war with it's like you know like what what choice do i make what do i do and sometimes you know your carnal nature takes over and then you learn you repent and then something happens where you start to mature and you grow sometimes the battles are still there but you know that's you know if i if i were to talk to somebody who's a brand new believer and say man you know i feel conviction because you know i You know, I didn't flip somebody off when I had road rage, but, you know, I felt like I wanted to, you know, and they might say, wow, that's no big deal. You didn't do anything. But in my heart of hearts, I feel like, Lord, I'm unfaithful unto you, Lord. I just I shouldn't even have these thoughts. I shouldn't even be angry. I I shouldn't be this way. And it's in those moments where it's like, wow, Lord, like even in this state, you're faithful through it all. And you know what? I'm going to step out on a limb and say, you know, maybe it's the same for you guys. Maybe it's the same. And what blows me away about the egregious offense of chapter 32, which is egregious. It's the the golden calf where Moses comes down from the mountain and he's with Joshua and he sees the people like all kinds of crazy sin and they're worshiping the golden calf. And they're saying, you know, wow, this golden calf freed us from... Uh, freed us from Egypt. Chapter 25 to chapter 31 are incredibly beautiful. Because the whole time the Lord is speaking to Moses about the tabernacle, about consecration of the priests, about consecration of the people, making a a people unto himself, atoning for their sin in these next Uh, chapter 25 to chapter 31, he knew that the golden calf would happen. He knew about it. And even though he knew that chapter 35 was going to happen, he made a way for the people before the golden calf. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, the biblical truth of that Christ died for us while we were sinners. Turn with me really quick to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I have to tell you, I've been kind of excited to get into chapter 25 of, of, uh, of Exodus. And sometimes I, 
you know, I read ahead. So like I'm already getting excited when we're in the book of Romans and it's going to take a while before we're there. So uh, in Romans chapter three, verse uh, 24, this is Paul writing to a young church in Rome. And he says, being justified, right? verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, no period. There's a comma. In verse 25, whom God set, or actually, you know what? Romans 5. <laughs> Senior moment. Romans 5. Romans 5. This is where penmanship gets me in trouble sometimes. Yes. Romans 5, verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates, and this is God the Father now, but God the Father demonstrates uh, 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 you know, demonstration here is something clearly seen. And sometimes when we read about this demonstration of what God is doing here, it's with eyes of faith. He says in verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, God, the son died for us. You know, what's so beautiful about this one little verse is that he didn't say, hey, Liz, you got to clean up your life first and then you come to me. Hey, Emily, clean up your life first and then you come to me. Hey, Jay, clean up your life first and then you come to me. No, he didn't say that at all. At all. He said, come to me. All you who weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. All the junk that was in our lives, all the mess that was in our lives, and he took us in. You know, there's that saying, Jesus cleans his own fish. And praise be to the Lord because he doesn't put these, you know, you come to me and then, you, you know, you, you have to do this and then you come to me. No, you can come to him with all, a host of mess. And in the course of time, he will do a work in your life. And what blows me away is that, you know, he'll take you regardless of whatever mess. And then in verse 9, Paul continues to write, he says, much more than having now been justified. Justification here translates as being rendered innocent. Having more than having much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from, from wrath through him. And you start to realize the cross is a very, very big deal. Very big deal. And the death of, you know, God the Son on the cross. His death and what God the Father does through it. Did through it and does through it today. He says in verse 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, this is God the Father, through the death of His Son, God the Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And you have the concept of reconciliation and saved. And reconcile is like, there's no more beef. No more beef. Like, you know, sin separates you and me. Right, not now, but, you know, before we came to Christ, sin separates mankind from the Lord. And being reconciled unto the Lord 
through Jesus Christ, it's like the beef is over. There's no more, no more beef at all. But then when you think about salvation, it translates as deliverance. You see, you start to realize it's a straight up rescue mission. Rescue mission. This place is not our home. This earth is not our home. You know, Zion is our destination. You talk to a new believer, you talk to somebody, it's like, okay, don't say Zion, I'll say heaven. Heaven. But there's a name for that place, and it's called Zion. Not the worldly Zion, the heavenly Zion. And it's so powerful here because in verse 11 he says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God, God the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, this is God the Son, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And this word translates as the exchange of restoration. I mean, think about if you have a 1972 Toyota Tercel. And it's like, wow, okay, I'm going to take this to a special dealership, trade it in, and pay no money whatsoever. And I'm going to trade in this beat up 1972 Tercel, and I'm going to get, uh, you know, a brand new Bentley, you know, a brand new, very nice car and way exceeds the value of what you turned in. And that's what the Lord does to us, for us, inside of us, a millionfold, a millionfold, a billionfold, because we trade our, just as we sing sometimes, trade our ashes in for beauty. And that's what the Lord does. That's the work of the cross. And he did all of this while we were sinners while we were still sinners. And you know, you talk to somebody, it's like, I can't believe it, it's, it's too good to be true. That's grace. That's God's mercy, that's God's grace. While we were still sinners, he did these things. And that's what's so powerful about our study in Exodus, going back to Exodus 25 now. Because you're gonna, we're gonna see eventually in the course of time the egregious, egregious nature of what happens in Exodus twenty or Exodus thirty-two, and it's sad. It kills me. Even the thought of it is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But you know what? In my heart of hearts, if I deal treacherously with the wife of my youth, even in my heart of my hearts, it's like, man, what are you doing? Why did you say that? You know, why are you behaving this way? You behave this way, and then you're gonna read the Bible, come to the Lord. It's like, no, it's not right. And you know what? It might be the same for you. It might be, I, I can't say. But you know, it's you see what's so powerful here? You see the love, the mercy, and grace of our Father in heaven. Hallowed be his name, his beautiful, beautiful name. Because you start to understand his character. That yes, there are aspects of his character that are, that do, um, he's just. There are aspects of his nature that are, that implicate wrath. Every single time before you get to passages of wrath, you always get to passages of grace and mercy beforehand, beforehand. You remember in our study in chapter 23, verse 21, and the Lord tells them, he says, um, 
or actually in verse 32, he says, If you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And then he starts to explain, hey, look, if you're obedient to me, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the handiwork of the Lord. And you know what? God never changes. You know what we read in Romans 5, God the Father, this is him right here. This is his handiwork right here. And it's also because it's uh, in verse 20, behold, I sent an angel before you, a theophany or Christophany. It's God the Father and God the Son together. You say, where's the Holy Spirit? Remember, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You think about the strength of our, our, our Father in heaven. You think about the power of our Father in heaven, the creator of all things, the heaven, the stars, the, 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 the sun, the moon, all these things. And then you get to a little verse that says, not by power, not by strength, but by my spirit. And it's like, whoa. Whoa, that is some major, it's like, who is like him? You know, sometimes I, it's like, who is like him? And I kind of shudder when, it's like, when I even utter those words because there's no one like him. No one. And what's so powerful about this is you have this fellow by the name of Moses. A beautiful, beautiful man. It's like you read these passages of scripture and it's like, wow, look, I'm in love with Moses. You know, I know I'm a dude and it sounds weird to say, but it's like, man, I want to like jump in here and like hug him and like, man, Moses, I love you. You know, because look at who he was when he was at the burning bush. You know, look, rewind even further and look at who he was when he was rejected by Egypt and Israel. When Israel was like, wow, you know, you committed murder. You know, we're going to turn you in. We're going to. And they were mocking him and teasing him. And then he goes into the wilderness. And who did he meet? The Lord. The Lord. And all these, all these times in life when you're going to feel like, where do I go? Where do I go? I feel like I'm alone. You're going to run into the wilderness. You know, the wilderness isn't a bad place to be. You know, it depends. Sometimes the wilderness can be a bad place to be, but it can also be a very beautiful place to be because it's like where the Lord works, where the Lord works. And you see Moses and his very incredibly beautiful, special intimacy that he has with the Lord. It's, I mean, what we're going to study in these next chapters, it's the Lord and Moses. The Lord is speaking to Moses. And Moses has to go down from the mountain and give these to the people. I mean, he goes down from the mountain and he finds something totally worse. You know, the golden calf. But that doesn't change. You know, the Lord didn't erase these passages. He didn't say, okay, Moses, what I told you to say, don't say that. No, it's here in his word. And you see, it's like the structure of the tabernacle, you know, and it's like uh, the consecration of the priests. And I'm just reading the headlines of, you know, and it's like, it's, it's so beautiful. Atonement for sin. And these are things they're going to be have, have to put into practice to the people when he comes down from the mountain. And what about today? What about right here and now? All these times where the Lord speaks from his word and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I learned, I learned, I learned, I learned. It's not just for the heck of it. It's not just so you can be like an encyclopedia. 
is to say, okay, you know, have this intimacy with the Lord and feed and feed. And all of a sudden the Lord's going to say, okay, now I'm going to take you and I want you to do this for me. I want you to go here. I want to use you as an ambassador. And it's like, Lord, who am I? Who am I? Young, old. You see, the Lord does it all through the pages of scripture. Young, old, male, female. It, the Lord does it. The Lord is no respecter of persons. No respecter of persons. Remember Samuel, he was even kind of, you know, tripping out a little bit because, you know, he goes into a, a, a household and the dad's there with all the sons. And he says, yeah, these are all my sons. Who's going to be the next king? And Samuel's like, is there another? Are you sure this is all your sons? And then the guy's like, well, you know, I have this other son, but, you know, he's just a little guy. He's a little twerp, you know, and he's taking care of the sheep. And the Lord says, hey, go over to that kid. And then Samuel goes and walks over there and meets him. And the Lord's like, this is David. This is the one I want you to anoint. And it's a child, you know? And it's so powerful what the Lord can do, young and old it. The Lord is no respecter of persons. And you see this beautiful, beautiful intimacy that God has with this beautiful man. And here in chapter 24, verse 18, we're going to read verse 18, the last verse. You see, like all the people of, of, the, of Israel, they're here at the base of the mountain at their little camp. And, you know, Moses, when we looked at it last week, you know, uh, uh, what he did is he, uh, he uh, in verse 4 of chapter 24, he says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. So at the base of the mountain is like the base camp. And he built these uh, like a, a, an altar there in these pillars. He goes up to the mountain with 70 men and Aaron is there and 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 her and these people are there and then these guys stay over here and then he goes up just two people Moses and Joshua they go up and then Joshua stays right here and then Moses goes up and disappears into the clouds what happens with these 70 men Aaron and these elders they go back to the camp and they participate in the, 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 the golden calf. They participate. Aaron fashions it out. But you have Moses who disappears into the clouds. And then Joshua is right here. Joshua is not exposed to this. what's going on in the mess. He's not exposed. The next leader of Israel. And so you read verse 18 says, So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So that's what we're going to look at in, in, in chapter 25 through chapter 31. We're going to look at this, you know, in the span of 40 days and 40 nights, what the Lord told Moses. And here in verse 1 of chapter 25 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps, it's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Yahweh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. You remember what's so powerful about this is that if you remember uh, uh, chapter three of Exodus, when Moses, he's like an unknown guy. He doesn't know anything about himself. You know, I'm Hebrew, but I don't even know the God of the Hebrews. You know, I was raised in Egypt. Everything I know is of Egypt. What about you and me? Everything I know is of the world and I know nothing about 
the God of the Bible. And then all of a sudden, what are those moments in life where the Lord calls out your name? You know, Moses had a chapter three moment too. And just as you have a chapter three moment, the very, very beginning stages of when you start to reason with the Lord. Remember, it's a grand invitation where the Lord says, come and let us reason together. Every single one of us who are alive in Christ, we all have a chapter three moment. But then, you know, some of us don't make it to the chapter 25 moment. Some of us don't make it to the, you know, chapter whatever moment. But that's what's so powerful when, you know, you yield your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because he'll say, okay, I've done my work inside of you. And not that he's ever done, because when he's done, we'll be dead. But he says, okay, now I want to do my work through you. And we're going to see that more in the book of Acts. A people on fire for the Lord. A people just sold out for the Lord. And it's so beautiful and powerful. You see the power of the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of people. Not, not the cheap tricks you see on TV, you know, and not these, you know, uh, sales pitch. It's the power of God into salvation. And so you see here in, you know, if you remember in chapter three, there was a period of time when Moses asked the Lord, Lord, who do I tell them you are? Who, who do I tell them you are? And even when, you know, when he, when Moses is on board, he says, and I don't mean to say he's on board, but he's obedient unto the Lord. And he says, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll go back to Egypt. And then he goes back, goes back to Egypt, Aaron's with them. And then he says, okay, you know what? Here's the, our, our, our uh, uh, deliverer. We're going to be freed out of Egyptian captivity. And the people are all excited. And then Pharaoh catches wind of it. And he says, okay, I'm going to make you work harder. More work for you guys. Double the work. And then the people get mad at Moses. Moses, you were supposed to deliver us. You're so stupid. And then Moses goes back to the Lord. He starts to blame the Lord, which is kind of like, you know, like, Lord, why did you do this? You see, I told you this wouldn't happen. And it's like, whoa, you know, like in my heart of hearts, it's like, you know, don't blame the Lord. But he didn't know who the Lord was. What's so beautiful about that passage is that he seeks the Lord. He falls on his face before the Lord. And look at him now. I shouldn't say look at him now, but I meant look how much he trusts in the Lord now. It just reminds me of me and you. When you first come to Christ, you first walk with him. And sometimes you question him. Like, Lord, are you sure? Like, Lord, your word says this. And I don't know if I should do this. Okay, I'll take a step of faith. But, you know, are you sure? And then sometimes it blows up in your face, you know. And it's like, you know, Lord, I told you, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. But the fact that you're, you know, on your face before the Lord. And you do that, you know, and a year passes, two years passes. Two years pass and 10 years pass. And then enough time passes where you're just like, I don't care anymore. You know, I don't care if you spit in my face. I don't care if you cuss me out, you know, because it's all for the glory of the Lord. And such is the case with Moses. Because he trusts in the Lord. And didn't, you know, it didn't start out that way. But just like any relationship, you know, the trust that a wife has to her husband isn't, you know, as solid as it is after 30 years, after 40 years, after 50 years. And it's the same thing with our Lord, because we are the bride of Christ. 
But then at the same time, what happens here in verse 2? God speaks to Moses. He says, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. I love this so much. Willingly from his heart. He doesn't mandate, hey, you know, take this offering. He doesn't mandate, you know, hey, everybody, you will give or else I'm going to kill you. He says, no, do it willingly. That's what I love about the writings of Paul. He's another guy that I'm deeply, profoundly in love with. Because it's like, wow, you know, he doesn't care about the money. He says, I don't even want your money. I want you, your life to be with the Lord. And it's so powerful because it's not about the offering per se. What's the condition of the heart? What's the condition of my heart and your heart? When he writes to the church in Rome in chapter 12, when he says, Sir, uh, uh, um, uh, offer your body a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Because all the people were like, Lord, what do I do? You know, or like, I, do I give, do I write a check for, you know, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks? And, you know, Paul caught wind of it and he writes back to them and he says, hey, don't worry about it. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12 in Romans, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove here translates as to discern. That's what's so beautiful about, you know, yielding to God, yielding to his word is because it's not my will. It's thy will. It's not my preconceived notions. It's the Lord's notions that are that derive from his word. And then you're transformed by renewing of your mind. And you exercise this discernment that Paul writes about. Then you don't have to wonder anymore, Lord, what is your will? All these people, what do I do? Do I give this? What do I do? And Paul says, no, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service. And in the course of time, the Lord is going to say, okay, you've done that for me. Now I want you to do this. Now I want you to do this. I want you to be a pastor. I want you to be an elder. I want you to be a, a, a worship leader. I want you to teach the women. I want you to do this. That's how the Lord works. He doesn't force anybody to do anything. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament, going back to chapter 25 of Exodus, he says, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them gold silver and bronze these are all materials that are that came out of egypt you remember when the egyptians were so freaked out about israel being god's people not at first but that's what happened in the the plagues that befell egypt and the people were the egyptians were so freaked out they were like okay here take my silver take my gold and just get out of here because, you know, my firstborn is dead. You know, I have these frogs all over the place. There's blood in the water. The water's in the blood. All these things. Get out of here. Take my gold. Take my silver. Get out of here. All my 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 uh, flock, they're all dead. In my fields, everything's burned. Everything's eaten by the locusts. Get out of here. They were so freaked out. 
And they said, here, take this gold, take this silver. And, you know, thus fulfilling what the Lord told Moses, you will plunder Egypt. You know, he didn't give exact details into how that would be. But what about the promises of the Lord? You know, when we lean on these promises from his word and, you know, not necessarily the Lord doesn't give us uh, like clear details on how that will pan out in our lives. But his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. You know, all these times when, you know, when, you know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he died, he told uh, Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then when the Lord rises again, he has a conversation with Peter. And he says, Peter, there's going to come a time when, you know, you want to do this, you want to go here, but there's going to come a time where men will lead you where to go. And then the Spirit revealed to Peter that the Lord was talking about how he's going to die. That, yeah, you know, Peter would free to go here. It's, you know, 12 o'clock. I want to go get a burger over here. You know, it's midnight. I want to go get a burrito over here. Free to do whatever. But you know what? In Peter yielding his, his heart to the Lord, now the Lord is revealing to him, hey, you're going you're gonna to die for my name. And it's so powerful. All the disciples, they get killed. All the apostles, they get killed. Paul had his head cut off. A Nero. It's such a trip. I mean, all these people. I mean, the cost of following the Lord, it's, it's, it comes at a high cost. At a high cost. You will lose friends. You will lose family. You might even lose your head. But beautiful in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's happening today. Christians being killed. And you know, just another sign of the times. This world is fading, man. The world is a mess now. It's a mess. And there's going to be a man with a plan who comes on the scene and everybody's going to go to him. And the Bible says, no, that's the work of the, the Antichrist spirit. It's the work of the devil himself. They're going to have the devil personified in the Antichrist. And all these people saying, oh, go ahead and talk, take the mark of the beast. John MacArthur. Go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You know, I used to like John MacArthur. I'll be honest. I'll be straight up. I used to like him a lot. 20 years ago, then something happened where I started reading the Bible. And it's like, wait a second. You know what? This doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. So then I have a choice to make. Who is right? The Bible or man? Every single one of us has a choice to make. But yet the heart of the Lord is still the same. God is saying here, take these things from the people who will offer it willingly. Verse 3, and this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. You know, a little side note. I realize that I already read that. But you know, a little side note. Yeah, I'm getting old and I do that. But what's so cool, you know, one day I'm going to stand before the Lord. And, you know, it's kind of like a, my little safety net, my little safety measure. I was like, Lord, I gave them everything of your word. And I made so sure of it that some verses I said two times or three times, you know, so it's like it's like a little safety net for me. So here he says in verse four, blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair. 
These are material that the Lord is he's giving instruction to Moses about material used to build the tabernacle. It's so incredibly beautiful. Remember, it's just Moses and the Lord. Moses went up to the mountain and disappeared into the cloud. And, you know, Joshua was kind of at a lower elevation. And here he's walking up the mountain. Him and Moses, they walk up. And then Moses says, okay, stay right here. And then he goes up. I mean, can you imagine being with Joshua? It's like, hey, Joshua, you know, here we are. And then all of a sudden Moses walks up. He's an old man. He's not like running up a hill. You know, Moses walks up. You see the clouds. And then all of a sudden he starts to kind of get translucent with the clouds and then disappears and he's with the Lord. And you know what's so powerful? The people at the base camp, they thought Moses was dead. Joshua didn't think that. Joshua didn't think, oh, you know, Moses, I didn't see him. He went up in the clouds. Okay, he's dead. I'm going to go back to base camp. No. He stayed there. He waited. It was the people that thought, oh, Moses is dead. He's been up there for 40 days. He's dead. And so the Lord is giving this special instruction to this beautiful, beautiful man in this intimacy that he has with the Lord. And the Lord is, you know, giving him blueprints. He says in verse 6, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. These are all the, the breastplate that the high priest has to wear. There's stones in there. And he's telling him, collect these things from the people. He says in verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary or a sacred place that I may dwell among them. You know, you read this passage right here, and I tell you the truth, it's the same today. You say, what do you mean it's the same today? Turn with me to John chapter 1. The book of John chapter 1. Verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. You know, you look at your Bible, you know, and it's Genesis to Revelation. And it's like one big, incredibly huge love letter that is written for you and for me. You know, I, I, there was no texting back in the day when I was like, you know, a, a, a younger fellow. Well, there was, but it was new technology. And so I would get letters from Liz in the mail and she would write me letters, you know, and I would open it up and man, I couldn't wait. I'd see her handwriting and I couldn't wait to read those letters. I would open it, you know, and I'd see, you know, dear Jay or, you know, she had a special name for me, which I won't say, you know, and so she'd write it and I'd be like, you know, with her handwriting and I would read it and it was like, Somebody could say, here, Jay, here's a letter from Liz, and here's 500 bucks. And I would take that 500 bucks and throw it right back in his face. Give me that letter. I want that. Because I was in love with her. It's like, man, I want to hear what she has to say. So she'd write me a letter. And that's what's so powerful about the holy word of God that we have before us. It's like, wow. It's You know, there are some hard passages. I'm not going to lie. And, you know, you know these hard passages. But it, it doesn't do it. For the pain, he's doing a work in our lives, in my life, in your life. He's doing a work. He's making a holy people unto himself, a bride 
a bride. And here it says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word for dwelt, it translates as a verb. And the verb is to tabernacle. To tabernacle. Oneness. Oneness. Have you ever been in a dance? A very, very intimate dance where it's you and another person and you could care less about whoever's in the room. You could care you could care less about the music that's playing. That's this intimacy to tabernacle, oneness with this people. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. So you see these concepts in the Old Testament of tabernacle, which are a shadow of the things to come. And it's the oneness that God has with us through his son. I mean, as hard as it is on Sunday to study the death of our Lord. Because I don't like the thought of him getting punched. I don't like it. Him getting beaten and bruised. I don't like it. But then you read the prophecies, how he's beaten and bruised for our iniquities. And it's like, man, in my spirit, I love it. Not the actual event, but what God our Father has done in it and through it. It's like, whoa, that is obedience unto death, exemplified by our Lord, showing us the way. It's, he's the good shepherd. He's, I feel weird saying he's the good shepherd. Not in a bad sense, but it's like, man, I want to call him like the beautiful shepherd, like the good times infinity shepherd. Because it's so powerful. Like, wow, look at look at what God has done in him. Look at what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. While we were sinners. And you see his obedience. Man, it's... I don't have words for it. But this concept of tabernacling, it's a, it's a oneness. In the Old Testament, it's a noun. In the New Testament, it's a verb. Oneness. Very special intimacy that God our Father desires with you through the blood of His Son. And so you have this going back to Exodus 25, verse 8. says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishing furnishings. Just so, just so you shall make it. Or just so, or like, you know, like, as this is what I'm showing you, just so you shall make it. An example would be he's giving blueprints here. How, the, how Moses is to pattern the tabernacle and pattern the furnishings. But do you remember the special intimacy that God had with a fellow, another beautiful man that I'm in love with by the name of Noah? Noah. As a little refresher, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. You say, man, Jay, we're all over the place. Why are we going here and there? Because I speak about intimacy. Intimacy that the Lord has, that the Lord desires with this people. And you know what happens here? 
He says in, in Genesis 6, or Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Then you have a fellow by the name of Noah in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, by the way, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that he was a preacher of righteousness. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So as much as we talk about, you know, you look at the news, you turn on the TV and you see the news, you, you know, go to your phone and you look at the news sites and it's like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe, you know, a couple houses down there was a drug bust over here. Or I can't believe this teacher in the local school was, you know, a pervert and he was having sex with little boys and little girls. And it's like, man, this world is so disgusting. Get me out of here. Who does the Lord find grace in today? Who finds grace in the Lord today? Just like Noah, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. You see this relationship? Oneness with the Lord? It's not about religion. Not a religion whatsoever. You know, people put aside the Bible so they can, you know, do their smoke things and do their special priest dressed like you know all stupid and it's like man it has nothing to do with religion oneness with the lord two becoming one noah walked with god and so look at what how god speaks to noah in this special intimacy in verse 13 and god said to noah the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside, inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. And then he starts to give all these blueprints. This is what I want you to do. This is how you shall make it. And you know what's so powerful about this? Verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. You see the obedience of Noah. Why? Because he had oneness with the Lord. A very beautiful, beautiful intimacy with God. And it's so powerful. It's so beautiful. Now going back to Moses here in chapter 25 of Exodus. He is... Another man who has this special intimacy with the Lord. When you read the passages of Hebrews, you start to realize, you know, all these Judaizers, all these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and uh, uh, priests, they placed Moses above Jesus Christ. Oh, we follow Moses. We're hardcore. But then you read Hebrews and it's like, no, Moses was a servant in the household of God. Moses was a servant. A beautiful, beautiful, obedient servant. Then you take that and you put Jesus Christ right over Moses. Jesus Christ has to be number one. Nobody else. Nobody else. Jesus Christ must be number one. And so just as the Lord gives blueprints unto Noah for, hey, this is how you have to build the ark. He does the same thing with Moses. 
the exact same thing. More often than not, when you do have intimacy with the Lord, more often than not, intimacy with God will eventually involve the rescue of others. It might not be immediately, but you have this special intimacy with the Lord. You desire this intimacy with the Lord. The Lord speaks to you. It's not just for the heck of it. More often than not, it will involve some kind of rescue mission. For the disciples, they had a special intimacy with the Lord. And then, you know, we're going to see it on Sunday. Go and make disciples now. It's not just intimacy to have this intimacy. It's to have the intimacy where the Lord says, okay, you've been like Mary. Now I want you to do like this. You've sat at my feet. Now I want you to go and do this. It's a rescue mission. Get into the ark. You go on this mission. Get into the ark. Get inside. Abide in Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts. You're going to see, okay, you know, they take their orders. And I don't mean to say they take their orders, but they're obedient unto the Lord. And they go and do it just exactly as the Lord has said. And you know who's there with them? The Holy Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit. Doing mighty, mighty things. And so the Lord tells them at the end of verse 9, you know, these are the patterns I'm going to give you. And you do it. You're going to make it just like this. <clears throat> Make it just like this. In Hebrews chapter 8, it is revealed that these things that the Lord is telling Moses are merely a copy, a copy of the tabernacle and sanctuary of the Lord in heaven. In heaven. That's what they are. They're a copy. It's not to say, you know, it's a shadow of the things to come. Just as the Old Testament is a shadow of Jesus Christ, so too is the tabernacle and then the, uh, uh, um, um, the temple that is built. Like the, the tabernacle is precursor to the temple. And the temple is precursor to the temple in your body. But then there is another temple, a heavenly temple. And I'm speaking of Zion. See, the Lord is at work. Even, even, I mean, we're in Exodus. And when you read Hebrews, and we're going to study a lot of Hebrews, and we've already touched on Hebrews. We've already touched into Romans. And we're going to see, wait a second, we're new covenant believers. It's not to go back to the law. It's to look at the law through these, you know, new covenant lenses and realize, oh my goodness. Wow, Lord, you were at work way back here. And so look at what he says here in uh, verse 10. He says, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. That's, you know, like the ark of the covenant. You know, he's telling him, hey, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. You know, what's so powerful about this is that there's passages here in these next ch several chapters where the Lord says, hey, Moses, you shall do this. But then there's passages where, hey, they shall do this now. Just like it is written here in verse 10. They shall make an ark. Don't forget. You know, chapter 32 is coming. And the Lord knows that chapter 32 is coming. And yet he's still making a way for the people. 
just as he knows my sin, just as he knows your sin, and while we were sinners, he made a way. It's, it's wild. It's, I don't mean wild to say this to sound disrespectful to the Lord. I mean wild, like what kind of love is this? That's not of this world. It's not of this world. That's how much God loves you. He says in verse 11, and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make it on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You know what's so powerful? The, the, the Lord is giving Moses these instructions for the tabernacle. And we're going to see in later chapters, like in Numbers, how Israel would move from camp to camp. The Lord would direct them, okay, now you're going to go here. And they would move there. And then they would go and construct the tabernacle. It was like portable. You know, they'd, they'd put it up and put the, the sheets down, the linens down, and do all these things. And there's passages in Scripture where Moses, you know, the Lord tells the, the, Moses, hey, you know what? The people are the people. I'm speaking to you, Moses. And Moses tells the people, you guys stay over here. And then the people look up and they see Moses, one guy, putting the rings in the pole, doing all these things, being obedient to the Lord. It's like, wow. It's You know, what about when you're doing something for the Lord? And you're being obedient to the Lord and people think you're the stupidest person. What are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Nobody's going to care. And you're just obeying in your heart of hearts. You're being obedient to the Lord. You know what I say? Who cares what other people think? Who cares? Who are they? Straight up. Who are they? Are they going to be with you when you're standing before the Lord? Are they going to advocate for you? No way! Exclamation point. No way. There's only one advocate we have. And it's Jesus Christ. You listen to him. And he'll direct your paths. And it's so powerful. You know, it, you see these things and it's like, wow, Lord, you desire this intimacy with your people. It's not like, you know, you ask the Lord, Lord, you know, can I please have intimacy with you? It's, it's not like that at all. You know, what son goes to his dad and says, you know, hey, dad, can I please have intimacy with you? And then, oh, hold on, you know, let me, let me watch my football game. I mean, you have that in the world, but that's the world. And that's an example of a stupid dad. But a son, hey, dad, can I have some intimacy with you? Can we just go hang out, have a hot dog and some Coke? Like, yeah, son, you know, jump in the car, let's go. I've been waiting for you to tell me that or ask me that. Yeah, I'm right here, son. What? It's oneness. You see how our Lord desires these things with his people. And so he says here in verse 15, the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. He hasn't received the testimony just yet. But there's no more asking these questions like, who are you, Lord? Like he did in chapter 3. All these chapters that we've studied from chapter 3, 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way. And here we are reading chapter 25. And you see Moses trusts in the Lord. More and more and more and more and more and more. The same way you can trust in the Lord more and more and more and more. He trusts him. And you know what's so powerful is these things that the Lord is telling Moses to tell the people. He doesn't tell the people until chapter 35. Chapter 35 is when he tells the people, oh, you know, when I was up in the mountain, this is what the Lord tell me, told me to tell you. And this is the will of the Lord for you. This is after the golden calf, which happens in chapter 35. And then, you know what happens in chapter 36? Moses gives a command to the people. He says, stop. You guys have to stop. It's too much. We have too much gold. We have too much silver. We have too much of these fabrics. There's too much. Therefore, I give a command. Stop. You have to stop. It's an Old Testament example of where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Because in chapter 32, you have a great, great fall. Great egregious sin. But then, you know, turn the page. Turn the page. Have you ever talked to somebody that's like, you know, man, I've committed this great, great sin. Great sin. It's like, you know, you have to turn the page. And part of that is repentance unto the Lord. You have to get on your knees before the Lord and say, Father, I repent before you. You know, it's like, that's how we're made new. That's the process of regeneration. And then remember, the, it's not to say like, you know, we are a regenerate people. But keep in mind, we're in the world. We're in the world. People say, oh yeah, you know, I repented when I was 10 years old. I, you know, I received the Lord as my savior when I was 10 years old. And it's like, wow, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But what happened when you were 15? What happened when you became sexually active at, you know, 17? You know, and here you are, you know, 23 and you got four kids. It's like, what happened? You need to repent. You need to turn the page. So it's like, you know, we looked at the egregious nature of chapter 32 and we're looking at the beauty of chapter 25 to 31 and then the beauty of, you know, chapter 35 through 36 where Moses gives the command, you guys have to stop. No more giving because we have too much. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You look at this world. What a sick, disgusting world we live in. And you know what? And I say this by faith and I say this with, you know, new covenant eyeballs. What's so good about it? It's like there's fish everywhere. They're all over the place. The opportunity is everywhere for the gospel, for the good news. Look at what the Lord tells him here. Almost done. What the Lord tells him here in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat. Now, you know, I don't reflect too much on the Septuagint or, or like, you know, the Latin translations of Old Testament. 
but in the in the Latin translation, this re, re, uh, translates as the uh, propitiation seat. And I say that because we're going to look at some other passages. The passage that I mistake, mistakenly went to first in Romans 3. But it says here in verse 17, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it. One piece with the mercy seat and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you. Whoa, you see what the Lord is doing here? It's like he's giving these instructions. I mean, you start at verse 17. The Lord starts speaking about the mercy seat. You shall do this. 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 But what's the reason behind it? Verse 22. Right there where I'm telling you to do all these things. It's there. I'm going to meet with you and I will speak to you, speak with you. Somebody tell you know, I used to look at the Bible as a bunch of rules. Like a book of rules, like, man, you know, I can't do this. Like, you know, I can't get drunk anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't do that anymore. I got to do all these things. But then as I applied those things, I started to realize, wow, there's a reason behind it. Because the Lord, just as he says here in verse 22, I will meet with you and I will speak with you. I mean, if you're ever coming in a situation where you read the Bible as a book of rules, just remember this verse, verse 22. There's a reason behind it. And it's not rules to, you know, shackle us. It's rules to say, hey, look, this is where I have you fenced in my safety, where I keep you safe. I desire this safety for you in the, in the boundaries of my holy word, where there's green pasture and still waters. Satan will say, you know what? He'll be on the other side. He's also a fisher of men. And he'll say, oh, look, come over here. You can party over here. You can do this over here. Come over here. And a lot of people, they're sheep on green pasture, and they jump the fence. And they take the bait. And that's where they're under the law. And the law is a schoolmaster to bring them back to Christ. But sometimes they stay there. And they stay there and they stay there and their heart gets harder and harder and harder. And all you have to do is read Romans 1 to see what the what further steps in that direction leads to. That doesn't change the nature of the Lord. Yeah, he does have rules for us. There's such a thing as Christian behavior, behavior that is becoming of a Christian. But it's not for the heck of it. It's not to put all these rules on his people. It's because he wants to meet with you and he wants to speak with you just as is written here. He says, and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are 
on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now, this is the last verse we're going to look at in Exodus. But do you remember on Sunday when, you know, the veil was torn from top to bottom? That's a huge deal. That is a huge deal. Because you know what? If that never happened, you know, I couldn't say, well, you know, verse 22, all these rules is because the Lord wants to speak to you. Because you could say, no, Jay, he wants to speak to the high priest. You're wrong. Because there's a veil. But that's not the case. The veil was torn. The Lord desires to meet with you and to speak with you. There's no more separation from the holy of holies like there used to be in accordance with the old covenant, which was created with loopholes, as uh, Hebrews teaches us. Now turn to Romans 3. Romans 3. In Romans 3, verse 24. Sometimes my threes look like fives and my fives look like threes. Sometimes they look like eights. Sometimes it looks like twos. I just, my, my handwriting is really bad. Uh, and here in Romans 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation. That's why, you know, when I said I don't like, you know, Latin translations, but in the Latin translation, what we read in Exodus uh, uh, 25, it says the mercy seat is the propitiation. And here in verse 25, in the Greek, it translates as a covering or a mercy seat. A mercy seat. And how does this happen? By his blood. It is written here. By his blood. That the cross is a very, very big deal. It's the very point of this heavenly transaction. By his blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or in his tolerance, God has passed over. I mean, these are very big words in connotation of what we've studied so far in Exodus. And I'm speaking about the Passover. What about Christ, our Passover, as is written in 1 Corinthians 15? In his forbearance or tolerance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a huge deal. I don't want to minimize it, but it's a, it's a huge deal. And it's incredibly beautiful. And every single, one, every single one of us can laugh at the attempt of Satan to thwart the handiwork of our Lord. And the, there's prophecy. And it's like, man, one day we're going to laugh at Satan. People now, they fear him. It's, we don't have to fear him. We don't have to fear him at all. Because he knows where he's going. He knows exactly where he's going and he wants to take as many people as he can with him. And you know what? He's very effective. 
But we're going to see in, you know, in the book of Acts, we're going to see a people on fire for the Lord, sold out for the Lord. You know, they don't play games with the Lord. They're not beating on their wives and cheating on their wives and committing adultery and doing all these stupid things. And the spirit is mighty in these people. And the Lord is at work. Verse 27, in closing, he says, where is boasting then? Question mark. Is it ex or it is excluded? By what law, exclamation point, of works, exclamation, or, or question mark? By what law, question mark, of works, question mark? No, but by the law of faith. You see what the Lord has done? There's the law here, which brings death in the Old Testament. But then there's another law, the law of faith. Let me boil your brain a little bit more. In verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Question mark. Certainly not. Exclamation point. On the contrary, we establish the law. Whoa, what is it? It's like, I don't want to say that. I mean, I want to say that the Lord is like, it's, it's genius. It's genius what he has done. But that minimizes it. I mean, he's the, it's like, who can fathom his handiwork? You say, it's like, you're advocating the law? No, the law of faith. You're advocating that law? Well, don't forget, we establish the law. That's what abiding in Christ looks like. The fulfiller of the law and abiding in him, we establish the law. It's incredible. And you have these people today that want to go back to the law, the Hebrew Roots Movement, and start to do the works of the law. They miss it completely. You know why? Because they follow the letter of the law and they're deaf to the spirit of the law. But yet the spirit of the law reveals all these things. The law of faith and the establishment of the law. So we're going to end our study here.